Believe it or not, that music is 70 years old. It was written in 1936. It's the beginning of Bartok's Music for Strings, Percussion and Celeste, a cumbersome title, but a very famous and celebrated work. But even though that is getting on for a century old, it still sounds very modern, I think, to a lot of people's ears. I wonder why that could be. Perhaps it's because of the weird chromaticism. That first phrase we heard there is made up of tiny steps and then descending steps. As you can imagine someone playing at the piano, it's as though every step you take up, you come back again, as though someone were obsessed with covering every single note on the piano keyboard. None must be left out. The other thing that sounds rather strange and disorienting about that opening figure is its rhythm, it's restless, it's shifting. It's written out in even quavers, but if you listen to the way they're grouped together, the quavers, it's constantly shifting between one, two, and one, two, three, so you hear one, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, like that. It gives us this strange sense of the music constantly shifting between one beat and another, as though everything were fluid. This music seems kind of restless, alienated, and uneasy. Perhaps that's the quality that makes it explicitly 20th century, and you might say particularly appropriate for a piece written in Central Europe in the mid-1930s, when the mood of restlessness and unease was pretty general. But now that Bartok has set his patterns in motion for this first movement, these tightly claustrophobic chromatic motives with their shifting rhythms, he invokes a very old established, a very unmodern formal device to power the music forwards, the device known as fugue. You'll see as you look at the orchestra that the voices enter one by one, and they always do so on the same theme, the theme we heard right at the beginning of the piece.
steady accumulation of voices there and the sonorous build-up magnificently demonstrated there for us by the Northern Symphonia and their conductor Thomas Zertmeyer. One of the marvellous and very Bachian things about that writing, even though it may not sound like Bach, is the way that you're constantly aware of the fact that there are different voices moving quite independently of each other. And that's because Bartok quite carefully arranges it so that no two set of instruments have the same rhythmic pattern, while one is maybe going one, two, one, two, three, one, two, another may be going one, two, three, one, two, one, two, three. And so all the time you're aware of this shifting going on between different voices, as it were, in dialogue with each other. So that's Bartok finding a way to a very modern kind of sounding texture while relying on a technique he's learnt from a very old source, a source of contrapuntal writing of Bach's fugues. So in a way you could say that Bartok is being a kind of conservationist at the same time as he's being a modernist. But one sense in which that passage we heard isn't like Bach is that while Bach uses the pitches of his entries, the notes on which he enters each voice, to confirm his home key in a fugue, Bartok's successive entries just make the music seem more and more restless and exploratory. And that's partly because each is either a fifth above or a fifth below the note in which we heard the first theme. If you pile up fifths in this way, they make this kind of very weird non-tonal harmony. I'll ask our pianist Kate Thompson just to play a sequence of fifths piled up like this. Well, that's not the sort of harmony Bach, I think, would have regarded as acceptable. There is Bartok taking a very simple Bachian device to pile up intervals to make a very modern and strange and unbachian and untonal kind of harmony. And if you go on piling up fifths, you arrive eventually at the note which is in tonal terms as far away as possible from the note we started on. I'll ask the pianist to demonstrate that for again. Could you play an A major chord? A is the key in which we started and then an E-flat chord, which is where Bartok goes to at the end of his cycle of fifths. Now, that sounds really disconcerting, doesn't it? And that's the note that Bartok reaches for the climax of this first movement. And this is where the percussion in the title enter for the first time. We have a roll on the cymbals, and then the timpani, then a massive unison on that climactic E-flat, as far as possible from the original A.
That's the massive unison E-flat at the end there, as far away from the starting note as possible. There's tremendous power and intensity at this climax. If the opening sounded claustrophobic, now this sounds like open expression of anguish. But now Bartok begins to wind down again. Bartok was a great lover of symmetrical forms. The form he loved best of all was the form he called the arch form. In other words, where you build to a climax and then unwind by an almost identical process, something symmetrical and perfectly balanced. So where we built up to this climax by those piled-up fifths that our pianist played for us, Bartok now descends by another set of intervals, this time fourths. Again, Kate, could you play us some descending fourths? Again, not a very Bachian classical harmony, but if you listen to the passage that follows, you'll hear that as the strings fall away from the climax, each big unison is on a note a fourth below the one we heard just before, just like we heard on the piano. Well, I wonder if you notice something familiar about that viola line at the end. Da -dee -da 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 it's the opening theme of the piece, but at the same time it's not quite as we heard it originally. It's upside down, note for note, as though Bartok had put a mirror above the original theme and asked the musicians to play what they see in the mirror rather than what they saw on the page the first time round. Bartok, like Bach, love these kind of technical devices that nevertheless create beautiful expressive effects. And he does something even more mirror-like in a moment. We get that original figure, da di da di da at the same time as the dee-da-da-da-da mirror, so that you actually get the theme and its upside-down reflection at the same time. But there's one vital little element of colour missing there. Do you remember that strange, cumbersome title that Bartok gave this piece? Music for Strings, Percussion and Celeste. Well, we've heard the strings and we've heard the percussion, so what about the Celeste? Some of you will know the sound of the Celeste from the famous dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy from Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. It sounds like a little tinkling music box. It's a very sweet, innocent little sound. Well, I don't think sweet or innocent is the sound that Bartok gets from it here. It sounds like a glow worm or a will-o'-the-wisp or some other eerie 
nocturnal phenomenon. that's also extremely effective about this first movement, apart from these marvellous touches of colour like that, is this sense of organic shape. Sometimes you hear composers today talking about the formal bases of their work. It often seems that it's very difficult to relate what they say to what you hear. But when you hear this first movement played entirely, it's very clear that it is an arch. You can feel the symmetry going on. You can feel that this is a piece moving in an extremely intricate and organic kind of way. It's music that, that makes its point viscerally rather than cerebrally. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's, it's such an effective piece of music. But the second movement of the music for strings, percussion and celeste, this is in four movements like a classical symphony, this second movement is a very different kind of affair from that strange, claustrophobic, eerie first movement. It's a much faster movement for a start, but it's also very much affected by the folk music that Bartok knew and loved. Bartok was one of the pioneering collectors of folk music from the Balkan country. He was born in Hungary and loved his country's incredibly ingenious and, and fantastical folk music. Now, you also may have noticed in the audience here that the string orchestra seems to have been divided into two separate parts around the keyboard instruments in the middle. We've got a small string orchestra on one side and a small string orchestra on the other side. Now, it's not very obvious, listening to the first movement, exactly why Bartok does that, but it becomes much more so now because we get a kind of antiphonal contrast, an exchange between the two orchestras. Again, very much full of the kind of dancing rhythms associated with the folk music that Bartok loved. straightforward exchange between the two groups. But I wonder if you noticed something rather strange that the lower strings were doing at the very beginning there. Yes, Bartok asked the strings to play a kind of glissando pizzicato, so that you pluck the string and then slide your finger up the note. In music in 1936, that was a pretty new kind of sound. But Bartok was a master when it came to creating new kinds of sound, as we'll hear. And that becomes even more the case in the central slow movement, where the imagination becomes quite extraordinarily fertile. Another sound he created and demonstrates in this movement has acquired the name of the snap pizzicato. What happens here is that the player plucks the string so hard that the string bounces back and ricochets off the fingerboard, creating a kind of percussive click effect like that. I'll ask our leader Bradley Creswick to play that for us. I think that makes the point very nicely. It's the kind of thing you got told off in a school for doing if you did that during a string lesson. But now here's Bartok saying, forget what you've learnt in the conservatory, this is what I want you to do. Well, that's a striking enough sound in itself, but Bartok adds all sorts of fabulous percussive colours to that snap pizzicato sound. We have 
piano chords, and we have stresses on the first notes of each phrase from the side drum and the bass drum, and then the xylophone joins in as well. But one thing I'd like you to concentrate on here is that although you may find it hard to believe just listening to this music, it's in 2-4 all the way through. The whole passage is in two beats to a bar. So try beating along with the music, and you'll see how remarkably Bartok pulls against the, the time signature, pulling against the beat in the music. Try not to look at the conductor here. Try and imagine that you're following along and see if you can keep to two in a bar as we listen to this music. Would you have been able to beat two in a bar to that? But those rhythms, those extraordinarily complicated rhythms, however modern they sound, again are an example of just what a conservationist, in a sense, Bartok was. Because if you listen to music from what we now call the former Yugoslavia, or from Romania or Hungary, if you listen to the folk music, it's often rhythmically extraordinarily complicated. The kind of thing we put down as in clever innovations of the 20th century, these folk musicians have been doing for centuries, it seems, and doing so completely naturally. But the strangest and most innovatory movement of all in the music for strings, percussion and celesta is the third movement, which is the slow movement. I wonder how many of you have ever heard of something mathematical called the Fibonacci series? Yes, I see a few nods of heads there. Just in case you don't, I'll try and explain in very simple layman's terms, kind of terms I can understand. This is a kind of principle by which you arrive a kind of ideal proportion. Basically, if you can imagine a huge rectangle divided with a line, not quite down the middle. And the proportion of the smaller part to the larger part is exactly the same as the proportion of the larger part to the whole. And this is something that some artists have arrived at, it seems, almost without being aware of doing so. Well, one way of getting at it quite simply is to do a kind of additive sum. You add two numbers together, and then you add the third number to the second number, and so on. So one plus one equals two, 1 plus 2 equals 3, 2 plus 3 equals 5, 3 plus 5 equals 8, and so on, higher and higher. And the higher up the scale you get, the nearer to that perfect proportion you get. And you also see this, fascinatingly enough, in plant life. I've had this demonstrated for me at Kew Gardens, how plants use the Fibonacci series as well. Now, Bartok has the xylophone at the beginning of this third movement play just one note. And then you hear two, then three faster, then five faster still, and eight, eight very, very fast, and then back again, down through five, through three, two, and back to one. Sounds almost like some bizarre insect, doesn't it? Apologies to xylophonist Stephen Wibley there if he doesn't like the comparison. But as I said, it's something that sounds at once natural, like an insect or even maybe a strange kind of bird call. And yet at the same time, it's based on a mathematical observation of how nature actually works. 
Well, I don't know what the timpanist in the first performance of Bartok's Music for Strings, Percussion and Celeste, whether he thought that what he was asked to do next was natural. Uh, in the 20th century, a device was invented that you get the kind of pedals that you see on modern timpani, whereby the timpanist can change the tuning of the timpani very quickly. Before that was invented, timpanists used to have to turn the little taps at the side of the, of the drums in order to tighten the strings by hand, a process that could take a very long time. And basically, this timpani pedal was invented so that tuning could be done a lot quicker in between movements or even within the movements of an orchestral piece. But what Bartok asked his timpanist to do, which was very strange and very new indeed, was to press the pedal down and up while actually playing. And this is the kind of result you get. I'll ask our timpanist Edward Jervenka to give us an example. Taken on its own, it sounds quite funny, doesn't it? But put it together with those strange xylophone insect-like accumulations, that rising and falling number of notes that we heard at the beginning, and then add more strange figures on the strings afterwards, and already we're transported into a very strange kind of nocturnal world. I read somewhere that although Bartok was an atheist, he once said that standing alone on the great Hungarian plain in the middle of the night was the nearest that he ever got to a religious feeling that nature inspired in him a sense of awe that he imagined was probably shared by religious people. And there are passages like this, I think, in his music, where I think he communicates something of that sense. I wonder if you notice something familiar at the end of that passage. The figure the violas played. Da, da, dee, da, da. It's the fugal theme from the beginning of the first movement. Now, Bartok is very careful about how he places ideas like that. In fact, it's quite amazing when you look at his scores. Sometimes he plots out the timings of individual sections down to the last second. He's so exact and so concerned with getting the proportions right in his pieces. But what follows that is something even weirder than those sounds that we've heard at the beginning of this movement. I don't think this is the Hungarian plane at night. It sounds more like the surface of the moon. We get some very close chromatic string trills. And then there are sharp dissonances on the piano, slides on muted violin, and little strange eerie figures on the top on Celeste and two solo violins.
And again, another reference to the opening theme of the first movement there. A kind of punctuation mark, very carefully placed by Bartok in the course of this music. Well, the fourth movement, the last movement, the finale, brings us very much back to earth. Perhaps more so even than the second movement. There are strong elements of folk music here. Um, Bartok has another interesting pizzicato, a plucked effect at the beginning of this movement. What he has is the strings strumming a pizzicato, first of all down, then up, then down, then up again, like this. And when you have all the strings doing that, it sounds like some extraordinary folk ensemble, a balaika ensemble maybe, or a guitar band, but certainly something very unlike English folk music. certainly some extraordinary sound creations in this final movement. There's one passage that's obsessive, terrifying, a cellarando, as weird as anything in the first or third movements. But a little later in the movement, Bartok achieves what I suppose has been called a, a gesture of reconciliation. First of all, I'd ask the violas to play that strange, unsettling chromatic theme from the first movement again. Originally, that sounded rootless, restless, and searching. But now Bartok has the whole string section play it and anchors it very firmly indeed on a C, almost C major. It's as though he's saying, no, after all, this theme really does have a home ground, a foundation in the earth. So that extraordinary exploratory restless modernism we heard at the beginning is now harmonized with classical anchored tonality. This really does seem to back up a statement that Bartok once said about how he arrived at his particular brand of modernism. He said, we created through nature and atonal folk music, in my opinion, is unthinkable. Bartok may have entered some extraordinary new territory in this piece, but at the same time he's very keen to show us that it's rooted in the past, rooted in the music of Bach, rooted in folk music, that he's looking forwards and backwards at the same time. And I think that should be pretty clear as we listen to the music in a moment or two. But we do have a moment or two, I think, before we hear the music. Um, if anybody does have any questions they'd like to ask at this point, this is your opportunity. The um, piano doesn't get a mention in the title. Does Bartok think of it as a percussion instrument? That's a very interesting question, actually, um, and several people have brooded over quite what he meant by this, because the harp doesn't get a mention either. And is the harp a stringed instrument? Um, as you can see on the stage, the way he's laid out the forces, we've got string orchestra on one side, string orchestra in the second, and in the middle, these three what you might call homophonic instruments, the instruments that are capable of playing chords, the celeste, the piano, and the harp. And those belong together in a kind of family.